Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the monthly show where we talk all things Sonics. This is episode number 11, Developing a Pilot Operating Handbook. This month, Gary and I are going to go through the process of putting together a pilot operating handbook, a.k.a. a POH. We're going to review the major considerations to help you develop a useful and a complete document. So this episode is, is going to be a little bit different. No guests tonight. Instead, it's just Gary and I. We're going to, we're going to run through um, our thoughts. John is not going to be joining us. He has some family commitments, so uh, we'll catch up with him next time. And as you all know, uh, Gary Motley, pilot of Hound Dog. Gary's our resident high-altitude AeroV Sonics pilot, a longtime pilot with thousands of hours of GA flying, a former CFI, and has nearly 700 hours on his normally aspirated AeroV Sonics. So, Gary, with the weather, uh, no flying recently, huh? No, I've been pretty bummed. Uh, even for yesterday, for, for Christmas Day, we were hitting 70 knots uh, wind up here, so uh, I didn't hear much airplane noise at all. That's brutal. <laughs> well, I didn't have the uh, I didn't have the wind problem, but um, I did have some low ceilings that didn't clear until late in the day, and I really wanted to get out and sneak a quick Christmas flight in, but um, it just got busy with everything. But I made that up today with our 78 degrees in December here in Mississippi. I uh, couldn't ask for a nicer day. Well, good. I'm glad at least one of us is flying. So somebody told me the other day that the best thing about spring in Mississippi was Christmas. And I think they're right. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, local, local humor. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, there's a price to pay for that. It's called summer, all six yeah. months of it. Yeah, as your wife was mentioning the other day when she graciously gave me an invitation to come see you again. <laughs> right. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, and uh, you guys all know me. Um, I'm Jeff Schultz, um, builder of Sonic 604 and 1374, flying in the um, the frigid Gulf Coast in Mississippi. Uh, frigid one day and and uh, temperate the next day. So we went from we went from 70 degrees to 30 degrees overnight, and then we bounce right back, and we're in the high 70s. Crazy weather. Well, not too dissimilar from Colorado. Yeah. Oh, well, pretty soon we'll be out terrorizing the skies. Yep, and um, I always know when I'm getting a little bit itchy. You know, you start to get a little bit of the no-flying shake, so uh, I'm, I'm keeping it under control, but I need some. I need a good stretch of, of nice weather. Yeah, me too. All right, so let's talk POHs. All righty. Well, so the first thing is, why are we doing this topic? And uh, really, it's just kind of something that was in the back of my head. I've got a POH that I developed. It's on my website, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But it was something that I did, not because I had to, but because I really think this is a good idea. It's it's good to capture all of the information that that is particular to your airplane, put all those useful little tidbits into one nice document, um, and that way you've got it all captured and, uh, and and unique to your airplane. Now, I want to say in that you have to sit down and, and reinvent the wheel here. You can definitely take existing documents. You can take the Sonics flight manual that they provide and use that as a basis. But I think that there's just there's a lot of goodness to come from doing a specific for your airplane POH. 
Uh, I think it's going to help you do more complete and thoughtful flight testing to fill in some of those performance graphs. And then ultimately, I think that it's going to improve safety on, on flying your airplane because you're going to kind of feel out some of the corners of, uh, of your systems and your operation. So that's my own thoughts on, on why it's important to go through a POH. Yeah, I think you're right, especially the way we all seem to build our aircraft just a little bit differently. Um, it, it's what we just discussed a little bit prior to the podcast, uh, what we refer to as switchology. You know, so many of us got, you know, fairly elaborate switching panels and you know i might be guilty of that myself i wouldn't necessarily do it again but that's the way it turned out on my panel so so in this particular case is some kind of a simpler modified poh can kind of help you get things in the right flow and groove and make sure you get everything switched and latched and and configured that you need to uh, for the appropriate flight segment absolutely and you're going to have those checklists that you develop even if they're they really start off as a mental checklist Having a POH gives you some place to write it down and put it so that it becomes an enduring reference for uh, for down the road. And if you sell your airplane uh, or somebody else flies it, you've got a document that you can hand them, and it's going to have all that stuff. So I was thinking about this as um, if I was if I was having a conversation and somebody said, man, why, are, why do we need a POH? I thought, well, a couple of questions come to mind to, to illustrate the point. So let me just run down a couple of these. So... What is your max rate of climb on a summer day with a density altitude of 8,000 feet? Minus two. <laughs> right. Okay. So if you've done good flight training, you probably have a performance graph that tells you kind of what to expect uh, on, uh, you know, rate of climb versus density altitude. And, and you could probably go look that answer up with, with a chart or some notes that you have created to make a table of, of rates of climb, something. But, you know, there, there might be something you would you'd want to know on any given day. So maybe that's a good thing that you would want to capture. What is the starting procedure for your airplane? Everybody's a little different. How do you start that sucker? And hot versus cold does make a difference. Absolutely. What is the pre-takeoff check? You know, you can come up with a generic one, but you probably have a specific set of pre-takeoff checks for your airplane. I do for mine. What are they? Or, in my case, something I consistently seem to have problems with. <laughs> Okay, well, if the panel goes dark in flight, what are the things that you should check in order to troubleshoot it? Goes back to your systems. You know, what, what can you affect in flight and what, you know, what, what is a waste of time that you're just going to have to do when you pull the cowling and, and really dig into it? Uh, maybe that's something that you, you want to think through and, and capture in your POH. And then, uh, lastly, what is the approved fuel and oil? Can I use Automotive-based oils or, or aviation-based oils, if you're out on a cross-country, uh, can you use car gas with ethanol? Those are things that, again, everybody's airplane is going to be a little different. You could have answers on, on all four corners there. And so you probably ought to think about for your particular airplane and your systems, your configuration, what are the answers to that? And that may be something that you want to capture in your POH. The idea is we're going to create a handy, convenient reference document. And we're going to put some of these things in the POH. So before we delve into how to do that and what all should go in there, let's let's knock out some basic terminology here. Um, again, POH, Pilot Operating Handbook. Well, the FAA has a couple of different things that they talk about in, in the regs. And we're talking about um, Part 91, and we're talking about the uh, Airplane Flying Handbook. Um, so the first thing that they talk about is an Airplane Owner Information Manual. Um, and that is developed 
by the airplane's manufacturer. It's generic. So Cessna has an airplane owner information manual for a Cessna 172. It's not about a particular 172. It's just sort of a generic one. Um, so again, information manual, non-specific. The manufacturer may also produce an airplane flight manual, and that meets a an FAA regulatory requirement, and that's, again, in Part 91. Um, an airplane flight manual is created by the manufacturer, it's submitted to the FAA, and it has to be approved by the FAA. Uh, each manufacturer submits this on a case-by-case basis, so if you look at one from the 60s, it's going to look different than one from the 80s. And again, it's developed by the manufacturer, it's submitted to the FAA, the FAA reviews it and ultimately approves it. So that's a bit of an, an older term, airplane flight manual. Um, what we've done since the 70s through the General Aviation Manufacturers Association is we've tried to standardize this broad topic of airplane-related information. So we've got owner information manuals floating out there, which are very nonspecific. We've got airplane flight manuals, which could be in any number of forms that may have changed over time. And we're trying to consolidate everything, and Gamma is really leading this. And they produced in, uh, again, it was in the mid-'70s, a standardized document called the Pilot Operating Handbook. It follows a consistent form. The sections are all in the same place, and the idea is if you pick up a POH, if you're familiar with one POH, you're familiar with the same format on all POHs. And so since the 70s, general aviation manufacturers have been following the standardized format. So why am I going through all this? Because there is no regulatory requirement for home belts, but they put a lot of thought into how to organize this, and uh, why not build on, on what they've already done? Follow their example, follow their standardized formats, make it easy and make it consistent so when you transition from your Cessna to your Sonics that you're uh, you're using a lot of the same already learned tendencies and things like that. Well, Jeff, you're talking about the differences in the manuals and some of the regulatory requirements. Do you believe there's a regulatory requirement to have a performance section? In other words, you know, as you mentioned before, uh, climb gradient, speeds, uh, and that type of thing into a pilot's operating handbook? Well, if you're talking about the standard gamma reference document, there is a section for performance. And so that's a required section. I don't know what level of detail that they specify you must have. But if gamma is not, not regulatory, though. Gamma is just a private organization that's just making right. recommendations. Right. The reason I bring this up is because, surprisingly, when I had my mall, it had no performance data or, or graphs in the manual. And it, it was fully FAA approved. Yeah, and um, that doesn't surprise me. If the manufacturer doesn't have it and, and the FAA doesn't require it, then maybe it's just not there. Um, I, I think that the only thing I can say is there's a standardized format, and if you've got it, it probably ought to go in that section. But no, I don't think that there is a requirement for any of this stuff. This is all kind of good idea territory. Yeah, I think there was, there was probably various rationales why they didn't put the performance manuals in there, performance graphs. Uh, that was probably one less thing that some litigious lawyer could come back and get them on something. So if they just didn't publish it, then, well, we didn't tell you it would do that. So that kind of thought process. Yeah, absolutely. I had the same thought. It's a little cynical, but uh, probably not totally off base. If you don't put it in writing, then you can't ever be wrong. Sure. Yeah. That's right. So uh, we talked about gamma. We talked about the standardized format. Um, when you talk about 
uh, light sport aircraft certified under the light sport uh, section. Uh, those are all ASTM standards. And in a similar fashion, ASTM standards govern pilot operating handbooks. So again, if you're, if you're a manufacturer making a light sport, a special light sport ready to fly, it's going to tell you, the standard is going to tell you what needs to be in your POH and how it needs to be organized. So those, you know, part, uh, your normal general aviation manufacturers have their standards. Light sport has their standards. And then you get to us home builders and there are no standards. There are no requirements. This is all completely on you. You can follow their example. You can disregard it altogether, or you can create your own. I'm just making the point that there's a structure out there, and it, it's fairly logical. And if you if you don't have a real strong idea on what you want to do, follow that example. It'll help you kind of think through it and, and walk you through the process of, of kind of generating your own. Sure. I kind of went with the generating my own for my Sonics in this particular case. Many manufacturers like Sonics are going to provide some sort of manual, whether it's a flight manual or a POH shell or, or something. Um, and that's a great template to start with. There's a huge community out there of different home-built experimental flight manuals. So you can go out there on Google and you can go shopping for POHs that you like and use them for inspiration or just outright use it as a, as a template and start modifying it to suit your own airplane. Uh, the NTSB has cited the lack of standardization and documentation as a deficiency across the entire amateur built experimental fleet. And so it's one of those things they always kind of come back to. Oh, the, the um, amateur built fleet ought to be more standardized. They ought to do a better job of testing and documenting. And, and that's not necessarily wrong. I, I think that's kind of where we talk about improving safety. If you can capture some of these nuances of your particular airplane and document it, that's bound to have an increase in safety. And then the other consideration, uh, potentially, is uh, your insurance. So your insurance is not going to require you to have a POH. However, having a POH, even if it's something that you, you know, you kind of share with your broker or share with your insurance company, it, it can't hurt. It's likely to have a generally positive effect on, on your flying, on the safety uh, rate, of the entire fleet, and then ultimately that's going to be played out in premiums across the Sonics fleet. So again, if we as a community can do better in uh, in creating our own POHs and documenting and and improving safety at our own level, that's ultimately going to benefit all of us in lower premiums because of reduced losses. So I think I think it's all kind of tight. Even if you don't see it necessarily right on the front end, there's definitely a feedback into it on the back end of the discussion. All right, so talking about the standardized gamma format again for ga airplanes um i think this is a pretty good place to start um it's a little bit lengthy and so you might want to combine a few sections or trim a few out if they just don't apply but let me just run down these these sections and if you're wondering where to find this format uh check the show notes there will be a link to the actual document that captures this format uh, it's also referenced in the um pilot's handbook of aeronautical knowledge that's an faa publication it's in chapter 9 under flight manuals, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So again, these two are, are easy to find, um, and they are kind of the Bible that that most manufacturers are going to follow. So the standard gamma format starts off with section zero, and it runs uh, one through ten. Not all of these are required. Um, some can be either or, depending on what the manufacturer wants. So section zero starts off technical publication guidance, that's your cover sheet and your change record and all that kind of stuff. Probably not something that a home builder is necessarily going to include. Section one starts off with your general 
And that's where you have just your general descriptions and your applicability, um, all that kind of stuff. If you want to put a description of the airplane and overall types of characteristics, that's where you can put that. Section two is your limitations. Section three starts your procedures. So you start off with emergency procedures, and then you go to section three alpha, which is um, an optional section for abnormal procedures. And then section four is your normal procedures. So again, the idea is right up towards the front, you want to cover all those emergency situations, cover your checklist, and then you can get into your more normal sort of business as usual procedures. Moving on to section five is your performance section. Any of those graphs and charts and all that kind of stuff is, is going to be in that performance section. Section six is your weight and balance and your equipment list. Section seven, description of the airplane and its systems, really emphasis on systems here, fuel system, electrical system, hydraulic system, whatever. Eight is your handling, servicing, and maintenance. And for us, I think it's things like your um, just, you know, care of the airplane, um, how to take care of your your paint and interior, just, just stuff like that, just servicing, ongoing maintenance. That's a great place for all that kind of stuff. Uh, nine, supplements. Again, you can go look at a Cessna manual for that. And then 10, safety and operational tips. That's an optional section or an alphabetical index. Again, another optional section. So if we can start kind of zeroing in on the things that are important, um, I think a good general introduction, the limitations, because even as a home built, we're going to have limitations. We're talking about speeds and weights and center of gravity envelope and, you know, just general limitations, uh, approved maneuvers, you know, stuff like that. Um, you're definitely going to want to hit your procedures, including your emergency procedures. You're going to want to hit all your performance data, and you're going to want to talk about systems. So you can kind of kind of take this list of 10 things and narrow it down to just the stuff that's applicable to you. I think probably, you know, I don't, I'm sure everyone views these things differently. I've seen some pretty expansive and all-encompassing uh, flight manuals, as I'm sure you have as well, too. Some of the things I start to worry about, though, is when we start talking about single pilot, especially for the general aviation crew. You know, by the time we try to have to, if we're in some uh, some tight spot, uh, first, if we can dig out the pilot's operating handbook, it's it get problems trying to actually thumb through the things while we're trying to cope with the aircraft, the weather, uh, ATC, or whatever it happens to be. So, uh, you know, my thought process on a lot of these things would really try to to, to limit this as far as scope of pages and even lines, um, maybe supplementing some, maybe with more with placards or stickers, and something that you can you know readily adapt to in a, in a quick emergency situation without having to thumb through page you know 456, subsection A, paragraph B, that type of thing. Yeah, you're right. And if it's not user friendly and it and it doesn't flow easily and smoothly. You're not going to use it, and you're certainly not going to use it in an emergency situation. So you gotta you gotta find the right balance between documenting all your little nitnoy details and providing a document that's actually usable for the intended purpose. You don't want to have to go to page 71 to go dig out the emergency checklist. You're not going to do it. You're not going to have time. It's just never going to happen. But you probably ought to think it through. You ought to include that information so when you're reviewing it. You know, before, again, think about this from a, from a person who has never flown your airplane. You hand them the keys, you hand them the POH and say, everything you need to know about how to operate the airplane safely, it's in there. From switchology to how to take care of it, how to not put the wrong fuel and oil in it, all that kind of stuff. 
And, and you're right. You, you definitely got to think through what the right balance for your airplane is. Simpler is going to be better here. Yeah, especially, you know, an owner's information manual uh, can be very encompassing. And that would be a great document to pass along and say, save someone else some, some grief or point out some specific items in your aircraft to kind of look for during your annual condition inspection or, or annual, you know, routine maintenance at your 50 or 25 hours, that type of thing. Uh, what I would look for in, in, a, in a true pilot's operating handbook is, you know, right up front, you know, you know, loss of power, power, what's your best glide speed, you know, uh, anything special that you need to do with the switch. You need to just throw everything off, you know, kill your master and just be done with it and go for your best glide speed, uh, depending whether you've got a digital instrument system or an analog system, I suppose. Uh, you know, and then delve into a little bit of the, the basic procedures, you know, maybe a normal or soft takeoff, short field landing, that kind of thing. Um, but keep it fairly concise for the initial checklists. And then of course, if you, if you, if you have something you wanted to study more in detail when you're sitting around the coffee table, you know, sketch that kind of stuff out that might just at least jog your memory as well as being helpful for the subsequent owner. Right. And one of the things that I do on mine, the back cover of the POH, um, I, I reproduce my important checklists on there. So if you grab the manual and just turn it over to the back cover, there's all your checklists. You don't got to go thumbing through anything. Um, and then on the on the inside cover, I put all of my important maintenance data. You know, what's the what's the torque when you're torquing up spark plugs? What should be the spark plug gap? Um, you know, the head bolts. What do you torque them to? What are the prop bolts torque to? Just little stuff like that that you're always having to go look up. Put it all in one place, and I put that in the back cover so that I can get to that easy when I'm doing maintenance and, you know, you're away from home and you don't have your book that's back in the hangar. At least you got the critical stuff right there. Yeah, that's actually a good idea. I thought about that. I do have that on my, my maintenance manual that I keep in my hangar, but you're right. If you had to do some serious maintenance to the engine while you're away, uh, that would be a, a slick and handy little information sheet. Mm-hmm. So let's get into the specifics on uh, what we think that should go into your POH. So we talked about basic info, introduction, pictures, descriptions of the airplane, yada, 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 whatever. Um, this, this is, you know, your chance to be creative or not. Some sort of introduction to kind of, you know, familiarize you with the airplane and its major systems. Um, maybe some things in there like, how does the canopy latch work? You know, don't leave the canopy open without the prop in place, because if the wind blows it over, it's going to cause damage. Just some basic stuff like that. The operating limitations. Talked about this. Operating limitations, the big ones that come to my mind are your airspeeds. Now, this is produced on the plans. There's a plan sheet that, that lists your maneuvering speed and your VNE and all that stuff. Um, it's in the Sonic Supplied Flight Manual. And it ought to be in your POH. Again, very specifically spelled out, what are your airspeed limitations? Once you have done your performance testing and you know what your VX and VOI is, go ahead and throw those in there anyway. They're not they're not a limitation, but again, everybody kind of expects to see the critical speeds. Flap extension speed, uh, maneuvering speed, never exceed speed. Might as well go in there and throw some some climb speeds also. Sure, all the quick reference stuff, the very handy stuff that you can glance at real quickly uh, before you ever take the runway. Yep, and then, you know, CG range, you know, that's a limitation. That's that's set by the manufacturer, ultimately by you. But, again, Sonics has done the hard work. They've they've tested it. They've calculated it. And so you're going to want to... You're going to want to uh, capture that as a limitation. What is the approved CG range? 
Um, and then any kind of engine limitations also. So if, if the manufacturer of your engine gives you a maximum oil temperature or head temperature or, you know, whatever, you're going to want to capture those limitations. If like the Jabiru, they say, hey, don't apply full power until your cylinder head temps are over 200 or your oil temperature is over 100. Well, maybe that's a limitation that you want to put in there uh, or or a recommendation, perhaps. But there's a lot of little things like that. Again, think of it like if you had to tell if you want if you tossed your buddy the keys and said, go fly my airplane. What should they know so they don't damage the airplane, get themselves into trouble or, or hurt it? Sure, sure. All kinds of little odds and ends, even when we start talking about more critical items like some of the fuel systems and fuel capacities. Mm hmm. So if you've got a capacitance fuel probe in there and that thing will be eaten alive by ethanol autogas, uh, you probably need to have a note of that. Hey, don't put ethanol in the fuel tank because you will trash the fuel probe, you know, or like some of the other home builds like Kitfox, for example, that for years and years used a sloshing compound in their fiberglass fuel tanks that was not compatible with ethanol. Again, that's the type of thing that somebody could go in there and if you don't tell them, don't do that, um, you're, it's anyway, it's just something that needs to be captured. Okay, so moving on to performance info. So we talked about all those performance graphs, um, your recommended air speeds. So again, your VX and VY, those come from your flight testing. Now, everybody goes through flight testing, and everybody comes up with generally the same VX and VY because the Sonics doesn't really change from builder to builder. Um, but you're going to want to have that in there. But something in there that, that is not in the manual is your best glide speed. What do you consider your best glide speed? Do you just go for VX or VY, or is it somewhere in between? Well, do your testing, come up with what you think best glide is, and put it in there. Your performance graphs, such as that rate of climb graph, so go out and when you're doing your phase one testing and find out uh, what kind of climb you're going to expect. Uh, maybe do it twice. Maybe do it at gross weight. So you can see uh, density altitude versus rate of climb in a handy chart. And maybe do it again at your more typical solo flying weight, you know, with three quarters of a tank of gas and, and just you and the airplane. Whatever. Whatever you think the handy reference is. But, but do that. Um, if you have power curves or drag polars or whatever, whatever kind of fancy flight testing type stuff that you want and you've generated this information, put it in there. Put it in the performance graph. Uh, you never know when you might need it. And then another one that, that I think gets overlooked a lot is the takeoff and landing distance. Um, now, if you're flying a, a turbo AeroV or a Jabiru-powered airplane, um, takeoff and landing distance is, is going to be probably not, not the number one thing on your mind. But if you're flying at higher altitude, a higher density altitude, or you're flying a lower-powered airplane, that's definitely something that you're going to want to have a handle on if you're going to drop into some little grass strip at a high-density altitude situation. Gary, what do you think about that? And an uphill takeoff. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think I think the danger here is that we get good at flying our airplanes, and you kind of have an intuitive feel for what's safe and what's doable and what to expect and, and this and that. Um, but I think that, again, to try to move the entire industry – forward, improve our documentation, improve our safety record. These are the kind of things that you ought to translate from an intuitive grasp in the back of your head to a written document and capture it in your POH. Because the second order effect is not so much that you're going to be safer, but when you start talking to somebody else and now you're encouraging them to do this good performance testing and to document theirs, 
and maybe they're going to take your POH and they're going to use it as a basis and build their own. So you're going to kind of help guide them through some of these important questions beforehand. So I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of potential goodness that comes out of this, not just for you, but for people that you're going to come in contact and you're going to influence as well. Knowledge is always helpful. Okay, and then uh, of course you're going to want your center of gravity, um, you know, your weight and balance, your CG graph, you know, if you have um, any of those graphical sort of envelopes to find, whatever. However you're going to do it, whether you're going to use the, the charts that come in the Sonic Supplied Flight Manual or you're going to do an Excel spreadsheet, whatever. You're going to want to capture for your airplane whatever the important display of your weight and balance information. And I'll tell you where this becomes important. Let's say you have a Jabiru 2200, a light engine out on the on the nose. That engine historically has a problem with going tail-heavy. And many of those uh, airplanes that are running the lighter weight Jabiru's, as you start to burn fuel out of your main fuel tank, the CG is creeping aft. And if you're already a little bit tail heavy, a little bit towards the aft end of your range, as you burn fuel off, you can start to bump into that aft limit. And so you may find that for my particular airplane, you know, I really shouldn't burn my main fuel tank all the way down to zero, because if I do... I'm going to run into a CG problem. Well, maybe that's a graph that you need to put in your POH or put a note in there that says, hey, don't do this. Or don't, you know, don't put 40 pounds of baggage and burn your tank, you know, down to below three gallons because you're going to have an aft CG problem. That's the kind of information that you want to think through and then capture in your POH. Something else can help you with that, too, is I, I use a Weight and Balance Pro app on my iPads. Uh, so once I had my, my basic weight and balance when I did my, my original one, you can, you can plot this thing into this, pl- this graph, this app, and then you just basically have sliders for pilot, passenger, fuel, baggage, and you can instantly see what your, what your CG is. Uh, fuel versus no fuel gives you both of them simultaneously. Uh, so a lot of people don't want to have to, you know, break out the pens and papers and calculators and do all the weight and balance for any any little simple flight. But you can supplement your pilot's operating handbook by one of these nifty little simple slider apps. And so next time you take a buddy for your flight, you know, you know casually ask them, you know, you know, uh, how much do you weigh? You just open up your app because you're checking off things anyway. Slide that slider and you'll get a great idea real quickly how the flight might go as far as your weight and balance. Right. I think that's a great tool as well. And then you can go one step further as you play with the various scenarios. Well, what if I have a passenger and baggage and and we burn fuel? What if I'm going to Oshkosh and I've got I've got a ton of baggage in back and I'm burning my tank down? You can do all these what if scenarios. And if you find that there's a scenario that might cause you problems, you can just make a note like, hey, don't do this. This is a loading configuration that will lead to a tail heavy situation. Make a note of that. Maybe put, you know, put a, a sentence or two that says, don't load more than 40 pounds in the baggage compartment and try to burn your main fuel tank below three gallons because on this airplane, it's not going to work. Um, yeah. And these apps will really make that easy to do without, without any sweat whatsoever. Right. And so you can, you can have the app for real time double check and to find out exactly what's going on. And if you know that there's a, a loading scenario that's going to be problems, put it in your POH, capture it, tell everybody. And I could also remind you, you know, maybe there's something that it was very fresh in your mind for the first couple of years, but after a few years of local fun flying, you kind of forgot about those little scenarios, and now you're off to Oshkosh, and you got two cases of oil that you got on special thrown in the bag and 
And you didn't even think about it. So anyway, do yourself a favor. Capture some of that information. You, you're probably, everybody's probably going to do this. They're going to play with all the what ifs. Capture it, put it in there, um, and make it easy. Okay, and then uh, I think the last thing that should go in your performance section is your approved aerobatic maneuvers. So if you're going to do aerobatics, your operating limitations are going to require you uh, to have that statement. There's there's one of those sentences on your operating limitations that says you're approved for aerobatics, blah, 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 something like that. Yes. Um, and then it's going to instruct you to put a note in the in the logbook about what the approved aerobatic maneuvers are and uh, I think it's something about like what CG or I don't know. There's, there's some there's some language in there that it tells you. But if you're going to do all that, you're probably going to want to know what are the considerations to go do aerobatics, such as gross weight, such as center of gravity limitation, and you're probably going to want to know what your entry speeds are for the approved maneuvers that you have done and, and feel are appropriate for your airplane. Well, write all that stuff down. Don't don't make somebody go back to the actual aircraft logbook to go find out if spins are approved or, you know, you have demonstrated a half reverse cube and eight, whatever, you know, you can list it. You can put some basic information in there, like your entry speeds, call it good. And it'll be a good document to refer back to later on. Well, uh, this is a question I have for you then, Jeff, since you just mentioned this, you know, when I was told my uh, designated examiner that I was wanted to do this for aerobatics, said, okay, well, you had to list the maneuvers. Do you really think, and I, I did, I, I listed things like the reverse cubinate that you mentioned, rolls, loops, you know, spins, that kind of stuff. Uh, do you think it really requires a specific maneuver, or do you think you could generally go along and say approve for rolls, loops, and spins, and would that take care of the vast majority of the maneuvers we're thinking about? Well, I think you could make a case that this maneuver is really just a combination of a roll and a loop, so therefore it's already approved because of that. I think you could make a case for that, but violent maneuvers, tumbling maneuvers, snapping maneuvers, um, things that's going to have you changing direction as you fall out of like a vertical line, those are the kind of things that you probably ought to be a little bit more explicit for stuff like that. Um, now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that you list all the maneuvers that are not approved, but it might be you know, you say rolls, loops, spins, and combinations of, you know, excluding any sort of violent, you know, uh, tumbling maneuver. Snap. That probably yeah. is okay. Yeah, that's probably that's probably fine. But I think that the way the FAA views this is if you want to do whatever operation you want to do in phase two, which is your normal flying anyway, you have to demonstrate it and prove that it is safe to do it during phase one. So if you want to take a passenger, you know, well, that's something that you have to demonstrate that you can fly the airplane at that gross weight. And that's why we loaded up with bags of sand. If you want to do, um, you want to list a, a, a never exceed speed, you're supposed to prove that the plane is not going to come apart, at least at that speed or below. You're supposed to test that out and then put a note in there that says, yeah, it actually will make it to VNE. Um, so and how nervous did that make you as you're building up your speeds? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I know maybe, when I was getting close to that 197, you were starting to watch things really carefully, weren't you? Right. And maybe you're not quite sure, you know, you heard, felt a weird vibration. You thought, hey, I better, I better pad my own stats a little bit because I, maybe I didn't build that plane quite like I should. Whatever. So I think just the general logic that the FAA expects you to do is if you want to do it in phase two, you need to test and document it in phase one. And I think that means 
do all your aerobatics in phase one. And, and it's not like a one, one and done. If you decide I'm not only going to do loops and rolls now, but maybe someday I want to go do a, a hammerhead. So I'll, you know, I'll put it back into phase one. I'll do some additional aerobatics testing and I'll say, yep, okay, I've, I've demonstrated it is safe to do hammerheads. I'm good. I'm going back into phase two. Um, I, I think that's perfectly fine. I just think that we ought to be clear about, you know, what we've, what we tested and, and what we're allowing and what we're not. Okay, okay. I was just wondering what your nom- what your thought on the nomenclature would be. Yeah, I for me, I, I think I'm a little more comfortable if if the aerobatics, what is it, the International Aerobatics Council, I think IAC, mm-hmm. if, if they use a specific name for a maneuver, um, I think that's probably the safest thing. You know, a cubinate, a reverse cubinate, a, a roll. Um, well, that's what I did. Right? I was just, yeah. I was just, I had thought in hindsight whether it would have been more appropriate or just as well just to say something like loops, rolls, and spins. Yeah. Whether that would cover it. <laughs> yeah. And I'll give you a good example. You know, an Immelman and a split S. You know, they're mm-hmm. very similar maneuvers. You start off and, and you know, one, you, you One's pull faster up. than the other. Yeah, you pull up on an Immelman and then you roll out, you know, upright. And then a split S, you roll inverted and pull out through the bottom. You know, they're very similar maneuvers. But you can go into an Immelman a heck of a lot faster than a split S. If you go into a split S too fast you're going to change your shorts afterwards. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of thing where, you know, an entry speed would be, would be really good. Like, Hey, if you, if you're going to do a split S, you need to slow to this recommended entry speed. Don't go into it at 140. Like you're going to do a loop, you know, you need yeah. to go into it at 90, sure. you know, something like that. Anyway. So I think those are great things to put in the performance info as well. And, and, and that's short. It could be a, a quick little paragraph and a couple of sentences on recommended practices or whatever. Okay. So next section, uh, your, your operations sections. Um, this is where we're talking about all those controls, your switchology. It could be as detailed as you want to be. It could be, um, Hey, here are, here's what every switch engage and an indicator light on my panel does. You could even put a picture of your panel with little arrows and callouts, or you could just describe it. Hey, there is two knobs on the, on the panel. One is my fuel shutoff. One is my mixture. Don't confuse the two. You know, though it could be, it could be very generic or very specific. But again, thinking back to if you were going to hand this thing to your buddy and tell him, Hey, go fly my airplane. And you didn't get a chance to necessarily brief him on it ahead of time. Is there enough information and detail that he's going to be able to read that and say, okay, I, I got it. I know how to go fly your airplane and do it safely. It can be, um, there can be some unique or non-obvious stuff. Um, either on your airplane or on Sonics in general. So most people are familiar with the standard canopy latch, you know, and how it, how it has to engage the tabs into the slot on the, on the Londron and has to go forward to catch on the strike plate. Uh, but is there a locking pin? You know, where does that locking pin get kept when you're in the hangar? How, how do you know it's inserted all the way? Do you have a tilt back canopy like John's? And you got to make sure you latch both sides. Maybe there's dual locking pins and how you do that. If it's a unique operation, you probably ought to describe it and make sure that it goes in, into that control section. Sure. And then, uh, and sometimes th- let's just talk about just quickly when we talk about the canopy pins for some, for, for example, those are something that's really kind of easy to forget. Um, I, I've tried to place my pins in different spots to make sure that I couldn't forget. I even went so far one time as to drill a hole into my throttle quadrant so that when the pin was in there, I was unable to engage the throttle uh, for takeoff. 
So if you happen to forget your pen, well, as you start to you know go down the te- down the runway, you're going to find out, oh, well, something's wrong right here. I can't push the throttle forward. Oh yeah, the pin. And then I'll give you another clue too. So some things you can design in your aircraft uh, to make sure you don't forget the item on the pilot's operating handbook. Right. And then to kind of take it full circle, as part of your, your checklist for shutdown and securing the airplane, you can put a note in there that says, return canopy lock pin to throttle quadrant. That way it's yep. there to remind you again next time. <laughs> yeah, anything along those lines. Yeah. And, and then I think um, engine operation is another area that – Every one of us might be a little bit different. Um, you know, what's your starting procedure? How, how do you want to, you know, run your engine to kind of get it warmed up? Uh, do you have a favorite uh, warm-up RPM? Are you looking for a specific oil pressure and temperature at a specific point in time? Those kind of things in there, after you kind of figure it all out, that's good to include in there. And then sure. Another, yeah, another I, I especially agree with, you know, probably the – the, the Monet operating principle for the BW, especially making sure your oil temperature is hitting about 100 degrees before you want to start going full throttle down the runway. Right, right. And then um, you're leaning. You know, you might want to include a little write-up on on the procedure that works for you on how you lean. Do you do you wait until you're you know in cruise flight and then you you set your power and then lean to a specific temperature? Do you lean to a certain fuel flow at a certain RPM, whatever. Whatever your procedure is, once you kind of figure it out, write it down. Write your procedure and capture it. And then other little things like, um, you know, some of your maintenance data, like we talked about some of the numbers, torque values, and things like that. But uh, maybe you capture your oil and filter change procedures and your interval, um, some of that approved fuel oil type stuff, um, spark plug and air plug maintenance, uh, air filter maintenance. You know, what, what type of air filter, you know, maintenance do you, do you want to call for? Yeah, maybe it's a little bit redundant from your maintenance manual, but maybe you just kind of go in ahead and throw it in there just, uh, just to kind of put it all in one spot. I don't know. Whatever you want. It's, you can be as detailed as you want on stuff like that. Sure. And in my particular case, I'm, I have something even extra for it. I have to use a, uh, <clears throat> add some more grease in between my, my prop hub seals. Every oil change too, which is kind of unusual, but. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that, um, that is very specific to your airplane. So, yeah. Uh, moving on to systems. Um, if you have an electrical system diagram, that ought to go in there. Um, you ought to have a way to do some basic troubleshooting by looking at your diagram. Like, my transponder won't power up, but all my other instruments are, are working just fine. Where ought I to look? Well, if you have your diagram, you can follow some wires and say, oh, well, it's probably the, the circuit breaker connection or the fuse block or, you know, whatever. The diagram is going to help you do some basic troubleshooting. Maybe not in flight, maybe in flight, but it's important. You need to have a diagram that explains how all your bits and pieces are connected. And then if you have a specific um, avionics information, like maybe you have diagrams or, or drawings or photographs of all the, the cables behind your panel. So if you have a removable panel and, you, and you're doing maintenance and you pop that thing off, you got some idea on what's what. Um, maybe that would be a good thing. Hey, what what is the pinout on my radio connector? It's a 25-pin connector. What am I looking at here? Well, it's probably 
in the radio manual, it tells you what every one of those pins is. Maybe you've modified it for your own use, and you're only using half the pins because the other features you're not using. And maybe you've made your own little drawing when you were wiring up your airplane on what that pin should look like, that connector should look like. That might be a really good thing to include in there so that when you're when you're going back and referring to it, you're not trying to dig back through a shoebox of old scraps of paper. You've captured it and, and put it in your POH. Again, good good systems information. Yep. Uh, fuel system is another one. Um, how's it all routed? Um, the Sonics fuel system is pretty simple because, you know, we only have the one fuel tank. But just the plumbing, you know, where where is your fuel sensor located? Is it a capacitance gauge? Is it a sight gauge? Is it a flow sensor? How is it wired? Um, does your does your capacitance fuel gauge only get power when the avionics bus is on? Or is it wired to the battery bus? You know, just little things like that. I don't know. Whatever. Whatever's important, you figure it out put it in there. And then lastly on the systems is your brakes, especially if you're running any kind of like hydraulic brakes or anything like that. You know, what what should be the, the gap between the pucks and the disc um, or, or the wear limits on your on your pads? Um, what kind of brake fluid? What kind of tension, you know? Is, is there a little trick on setting up your cables? You know, like in the Sonics manual, they say to adjust your cable tension so that there's a slight drag on the airplane. That way, when it seats in, it's going to be correct. Whatever. Is there something about your brake system that you probably ought to share, uh, either for servicing or to make sure it's it's done properly, and not necessarily, you know, operation of the brakes, pull lever, plane stops. That's probably pretty simple. But there's probably a little bit more to it. All right. What else did I forget, Gary? What what other systems? Oh, you probably covered almost all the systems and, and, and basic setups. Um, you know, I don't know if we just want to talk a little bit, maybe some about how we operate our our specific aircraft as far as speeds or yeah or procedures. This may not necessarily be anything you want to put in your your POH, but it might give those who are not yet flying their Sonics or those who have that might want to try something different. Okay, good. Let's do it. All right. Well, uh, when we talk about we were talking about some of the pilot operating handbook things and some of the things that kind of typically catch us. You know, the, we talked about the canopy pins. I think we've probably all experienced that at least one time or another. Uh, some of us more dramatically than others, especially if you talk to Mike Kelly. Um, you know, we talk about some other things too, like flaps. You ever try to do a takeoff uh, with full flaps in on a Sonic? Well, I can tell you I have. <laughs> Here's a classic example. You know, I'm, I operate out of a tower, uh, control towered field, and you know sometimes I can be like number 15 in line for takeoff. Um, so as you're sitting there, the way my system is set up, I need my full flaps down so that when I pull my parking brake, I can engage into the first notch of flaps. All right. So I have my own parking brake there. So yeah, okay. So now he says line up and wait. You know. And so you, you take your brake off right and you're lining up and you're watching for traffic and trying to get out there on the runway and get set up. And sure enough, you forgot to also retract those flaps back up. I can tell you that the tail comes up really quick with full flaps. And, but you start dragging, you feel like you've got a parachute on you. And it doesn't take too long before you figure out what the problem is. But that's another one of those things too that would be pretty handy to have someplace like plastered right up at the top of your checklist too is, you know, retract the flaps. And as simple as it sounds, even though you can look right out and see these barn doors sticking down, 
you know, it's easy to get distracted in a, in a high density environment. Right. Yeah. Good point. Well, for me, um, standard practice when I start my engine, um, I like to preset my switches. So I've got my battery switch on. I preset my mags to hot. And then I've kind of got my hand on the key ready to twist it over to start. And I turn on my fuel valve. I go to full rich. And I give it about one second to, to start flowing fuel through the lines. And then I crank. And usually it fires up in a second or two. You can feel when the engine catches. And you can release the starter because you kind of feel it. Oh, sure. I, yeah, we've talked about that too as far as uh, like kind of like a – uh, pre-fueling the plenum there where it sucks up through the carburetor. Uh, sometimes on a really cold day and I'm doing my first start, I'll push that mixture in and kind of do a quick three count even mm-hmm. uh, before I start cranking that key. And that, that seems to help me in my particular situation. Right, right. Now, when I've been flying and it's hot, it's absolutely backwards. You know, at that point, I find that it's if I will retard, I'll pull my mixture to full lean, uh, set my throttle, you know, the usual quarter inch or something like that, and start cranking. And as I am cranking, advance my throttle, my, my mixture cable slowly. It will catch and start up just slick as snot doing it that way. Again, starting with, you know, completely idle cutoff and advancing the mixture as you're cranking on a hot engine at my altitudes. It works really sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like to spend the first 30 seconds or so at a very low RPM, and I'm just checking for pressure. And uh, you're not going to see any oil temperature start to come up. But just give it 30 seconds or so to start spreading oil around the insides. Pressure's good. Then I'll come up to around 1,000 RPM or so and let it start to build some heat in the engine. And I'm looking for 200 degrees on my cylinder heads and 100 degrees on my oil temp. If I've got a taxi in there, that usually helps out. Maybe I've got a few times where I'm up to... 12 or 1300 RPM, but I generally like to get close to those numbers before I do my run up. Maybe I'm not all the way to 100 degrees oil temp, but I'm getting kind of close. Um, and if I, if I'm just not getting there, it's really cold, then I might bump it up to 1200 or 1300 RPM and let it, let it build a little more heat before I, I go up to those 17, 1800 RPMs for my, uh, my mag check. Yeah, it depends where you're located too. Certainly, you know, at my field, I have almost a 9,000-foot runway, so you, you can already figure that I'm probably taxing a, a more than a mile to start with. Mm-hmm. So as, as I do my first startup, uh, I will typically, as soon as I know my pressure is good, I'll let mine idle close to about 1,200, a little bit higher on the higher end. Um, and I do that mostly because, again, I, I kind of look at my voltage regulators, and I, I notice what my volts are doing. I find that in my case that when I have both of my ignitions on, in other words, my, my secondary ignition that goes through the coils, uh, they pull a lot of battery juice when I'm idling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gotten even to be so much noticeable that uh, there have been times when I've had prolonged idles that when I would start to take off, I would get some hesitation until I really got the RPMs up high enough. Uh, to get the battery being charged up through the, through the alternator. I've gotten to the point now where I'll actually, after I start my engine up and I've got it, you know, idling fairly well, I'll cut my secondary ignition off and just run on my primary magnetos. Uh, so I'm not pulling excess power from my battery. That way when I get out to the finally, final run up spot, then I can throw my secondaries back on, uh, do a full run up there. And have it work much, much more effectively and, and have a lot of energy reserves still in my batteries. Yeah. And you don't need the redundancy 
running your secondary ignition on the ground. You just, you no, just don't need it. Save the battery. Yeah. Used to be worried a little bit about following plugs, but I got to say, in, in practical experience, it does not ever seem to be an issue. So don't let that, you know, stop you from from thinking about cutting off your secondaries while you're on the ground, especially if you have to sit for quite a while. Yeah, and also just keep in mind that once upon a time, that secondary ignition was optional on the Aerobee because you just, you know, a lot of engines out there just never had a secondary ignition. So don't worry about it. The magnetons will be fine. Yeah, especially after it starts warming up a little bit. Right. Which can take quite a while. I mean, there, there are times, even by the time I get out to my uh, run-up area, uh, I'm still running a little bit cold and have to sit there for a few more minutes even. Mm-hmm. When I take off, um, I always kind of do the same thing. I, I do all my checks. I've done my run-up. I've done my checklist. I check for traffic. And then as I pull out, as I get lined up on center line, I double-check to make sure my fuel valve is on. I double-check my flaps to make sure they're set where I want them. And then I go to full rich. And I start bringing the throttle up, and I'm looking for an airspeed indication on my Dynon, which doesn't doesn't start reading until about 30 miles an hour. And so I'm looking for an airspeed indication, and then I'm checking over to make sure that my engine temperatures and pressures and RPM is all in the green. And about that time, you got to be quick, because about that time, the plane's ready to fly. So sure. those are the two things I'm looking for on takeoff. Well, here's something you just mentioned, too, that might be a variance. You, you talked about having your fuel valve on uh, are you one of those guys who will turn his fuel valve off in order to starve the engine to stop it? I do. Yep, that's my normal shutdown is fuel valve off, and I burn all the gas out of the fuel lines. Okay. What's your thought process on that? Well, um, I, I run a lot of car gas, and there's always a little bit of ethanol in there, and so I'd rather not just have it marinating inside my fuel lines. Okay. I run ethanol, too. I'll be right up front. I actually, and I find no operational difference between ethanol and under low lead, uh, despite what a lot of other people run, at least for this Volkswagen engine, the way I've got it plumbed. Uh, I, I actually do not shut my fuel valve off. Um, I think I did initially, and then I kind of stopped for some reason. I think I know why I've stopped now, but I use my mixture for, for idle cutoff. And I, I think I probably do it for two reasons. One, it helps me... Um, to be able to watch my my RPMs during shutdown and, and feel how my mixture setting is, you know, you should get that little rise in RPM there as you go through, you know, the rich stage to the very lean stage, so idle cutoff. Uh, second thing I found, too, is if I leave my fuel valve on and, and I start to get leaks, and I've had leaks, too, like almost all of us have at one time or the others, uh, I can find these more noticeable, and I'll notice that for sure when I come back for my next flight. You know, if you find a puddle of fuel down there, well, you know, you got a problem somewhere along the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that might be something you need to go back and see how your your, your mixture mixture cutoff arm is set. Uh, you know, there may be some crap down in there. It may be greased or, you know, there could be a whole host of problems that can cause some problems. So it kind of gives me another little pre-flight check as far as the integrity of my fuel system as well. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that that is logical and well thought out. Uh, I normally have mine back in the hangar, and uh, that's one of the last things I do is just double-check to make sure that my my mixture is at idle cutoff and my fuel valve is off because, again, I'm, I'm trying to prevent any sort of leaking gas in the hangar. Um, but you're right. I, I probably am missing an opportunity to just kind of do a, a checkup. So something I'm going to have to consider. Yeah, at least every once in a while, perhaps even, yeah. Mm-hmm. And as far as, you know, having, you know, the tubes swelling and that kind of stuff from the ethanol, I'm just not seeing it from, from the lines that I'm getting from places like Jegs and Summit. 
Uh, I, I still have my original lines in there, and last time I checked them, they looked just as pristine as when I first put them in. Yeah, and I'm running the same stuff. And, you know, they, that's all race car parts. They they run those things on pure alcohol, and they mm-hmm. do just fine. So they're yeah. probably fine. It's probably not really a consideration. That was kind of my thought. Uh, on climb out, um, it, it's very typical for me to just pull the throttle back a uh, hundred RPM or so. Once I, once I get up and I'm climbing out and everything's going good, I just, oh, now, pull the now throttle you're back. just, now you're just bragging. I got to tell you, well, <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at sea level and I've got plenty of excess power so I can afford to do that. What I found is that now that it's a little cooler, you know, maybe not today, but typically it's a little cooler and, um, I probably need to get in there and, Richen up my my aerocarb needle just a hair, and I haven't done it. And so I'm running a little bit hotter in the winter than than I would like to be, than, definitely than the summertime. And so just dropping that back a little bit helps get me back into a little richer setting. Yeah, I certainly notice the seasonal differences too. You know, obviously an off an altitude difference if I go fly down someplace like Texas. Uh, you know, one time there, I had actually pull my car my cowling rather so I could rejet my my carburetor. I was so lean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I I don't have the advantage and, and ability to to run part throttle my climb outs from a an eight thousand nine thousand density altitude in the summer. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and yours is is optimized to run you know flat out on climb out too. So yeah, you're you're in the sweet spot. Yeah. What about you know I I do typically I when I'm when we talk about cruise let's say we I, I finally get up to cruise altitude with you. Uh, I, I'm a real economy freak on running these engines uh, lean. I run lean the peak uh, all the time until my head pressure in my tank gets low that I start to get those notorious burps or hesitations, whatever you call them, and I believe that's just fuel mixture head pressure issues. Right. And then I'll have to consistently start enriching it up as my, my tank gets lower and lower and I have less head pressure. Um, but I can drop it down. I always try to drop mine back down uh, lean of peak uh, for normal operating procedures. I'm not very good at that, honestly. Um, the Jabiru will seem to do it. I just, I, I guess maybe I'm just, I'm worried about stress on the engine or high EGTs. I don't know. I, I can't even fully articulate what I'm worried about, but I feel like I'm probably, I'm probably more often than not running a little bit too rich. Um, and I just, I just haven't been able to bring myself to lean it out brutally lean in flight. I know it's just something psychological because I know, you know, typically my lean at peak, I'll run 3.2, 3.5 gallons per hour, right? My, my peak power, oh man, I might be running a whole whopping, you know, four and a half, 4.8 gallons per hour. It doesn't make any real practical difference. It just seems to be a psychological mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know that when we, when we flew to Oshkosh a couple of years ago, um, you know, we were flying together, so we were flying at the same speed, and you were consistently burning less gas than I was. And but I was flogging mine, but I was you still were. I was still five gallons an hour. But I was, you guys were making me feel so bad. I was whipping that little pony. You, you were you were running yours as hard as it could, and I was throttled back. And so it should have been the other way. You should have been burning more gas than me, but yet yeah. you consistently burned less gas the entire trip. So. <laughs> but I gotta, I gotta hand it to Sonics. I can hit that 150 mile true airspeed, just as they advertised. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I'm flying the pattern, I like to be in about the maybe 110. It, you know, it'll go faster in the pattern, but 110 is kind of a nice. It's just a kind of a nice number in the pattern. You can slow down for your flaps. Um, you know, you fit in well with traffic. So that's kind of my unofficial 
target as my as my pattern speed about 110. Yeah, I'm not sure I can quite make 110 in the pattern. Uh, first of all, my patterns are all very very tight. You know, I probably fly a quarter mile pattern distance. Yeah. Uh, I'm always very very tight. Um, my approach. Let's just talk about this for a little bit. What what makes people feel better? You know, when we look at a lot of the video to, YouTube videos and people are doing the GoPros, especially when we're doing the Sonics, is we got a lot of comments that it looked like we were dragging these planes in with a very flat approach. We know some of that is just optics from the GoPro and the wide angles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in general, we know pilots do drag pilot drag planes in. You know, they do the three mile final approaches, that kind of thing. Right. Um. I kind of started adopting something differently. Uh, aside from doing very tight patterns, that always keeps me, you know, close to the runway and, and saves me some time, especially if I'm doing touch and go after touch and go after touch and go. Uh, that's helpful. But you know, when you're up in pattern altitude and you're very tight to the runway, that puts you high, doesn't it? It keeps you high. And the thing you're going to find when you start looking at that sight picture is, wow, I can really see the runway environment. I, I can see everything that's going on. I can see the, the ground track where the guy's doing the runway inspections, the other aircraft. Whereas you can't do that when you start flying those mile, two-mile patterns. You just you can't really visualize all that. And we talk about the safety issues, you know, if you finally lose an engine. You know, I, I don't know how much real validity there is to that. But what I can do, tell you, is my belief is just in a training environment, when you stay in close and even at pattern altitude, which therefore is going to make you high on your approach path, it gives you that same impression almost every time you go to do a landing of a, of a power out approach. In other words, you're going to be sinking at high sink rates. I typically hit 600 feet or so per minute sink rate, which is high when mm-hmm. you're coming down. Right. Um, you know, I'll throw my first notch of flaps in as I get a beam the numbers just because it gives me a better sight picture uh, over the windshield. You know, we don't get a, we don't get a lot of drag on there, but it certainly changes the pitch attitude of the aircraft. Right. Right. You know, I'll still keep it about 75 or something like that. You know, base is around 70 or so. You know, maybe if I'm a little far out, I'll give it about 65 on final. Um, I might do a second notch of flaps when I'm, when I'm, when I've turned final, assuming I'm less than a quarter mile and probably maybe not even that. I, I find that I start adding my flaps in at the very last moment. I've got the original barn store flaps, barn door flaps. So I get a lot of flap out of my airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might hit the second notch of flaps as I'm coming in on final, but most of the time I won't hit that third notch of flaps until uh, I've crossed the threshold. And I find that last that last flap notch at the very last moment just keeps me from floating, so I can really drop it in at that high sink rate. It gives me a little bit more. I can still have a little bit of speed to arrest my sink rate um, as I, as I do my level out and flare, and I end up with a very short. Rollouts, as you've seen, you know, uh, typically if there's any runway that has a turnoff, the first, the first turnoff, I can usually hit those with that type of approach, uh, because again, I can see the runway environment. And I'm coming down steep, uh, and you know, throwing that last notch of flaps in there at the last instance, uh, it really adds the brakes into it and give you some phenomenal uh, short stopping distances. Yeah, and the difference between touching down at at 60 versus 65 is huge. Every oh, mile is. an hour excess speed that you carry on on final, I mean, it really increases your stopping distance. Well, but that's not really my landing distance. You know, I talked about keeping 60 in, but that's just with the type of approach that I'm doing because I need an extra 10 miles an hour to arrest that sink rate. 
So once I go to my flare, my level off, I'm instantly dropping down less than 50. Because right. it, it, take, it takes a lot of yank back to, to arrest that, that high sink rate. Mm-hmm. You know, but as I was telling other Sonics pilots, if they're flying normal patterns, when they get close to the threshold, they, I really recommend they get down to about 50 miles an hour. I find most of us are really flying these things way too fast. Uh, I'm guilty. Sonics. Yeah. And have a problems, you know, with, with rollouts or, uh, you know, frogging it or, or tiggering it down the runway as we, as we call it in our circle. Uh, so we've got to really slow these planes in. And even if you don't need the flaps, uh, for your descent rate, you know, you can grab that handle and, and yank that last degree of flap in as you cross that threshold. Uh, I think you can really do a, a great deal for arresting, um, some of that excess speed and energy that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I agree a hundred percent. Um, it's comforting to fly a little bit faster pattern, but it's not necessarily the most efficient way to do it. And, and I'm with you. I, after flying gliders now for the last year, um, I start to get a little nervous. If I, if I get outside of that, that gliding cone back to the runway, I get a little nervous, you know, like, Oh boy, I'm, I'm in the wrong spot. I, I don't like what I see here. Cause that's the kind of thing that, you know, you start to get a little nervous in a glider and you're not going around. Oh no! So you 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 you've come to like the same sight picture. You like that high sight picture. Yep. Close in, you know. Drop it in with whatever drag devices you got. In your case, spoilers. In our case, you know, we can slip it and throw the flaps in. Yep. And you know, th- you know, putting a, a Sonics in a in a in a forward slip with full flaps will will do the trick. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm kind of a fan of the continuous 180 degree turn. So you fly a little tighter downwind. And then when you get to your touchdown point, you just do a, a nice, smooth, 180-degree radius turn right on to final. Oh, and, absolutely. Uh, that's that's what I do, too, with the tight yep. patterns I fly. And as you notice, too, even AOPA in North Dakota now are starting investigating the potential of having or encouraging the instruction of the continuous turn <laughs> pattern like we were just talking about. Right. But, you know, in essence, I've been doing it for years. So Yeah, but it only works if you're closer to the runway. You can you get be very a mile close. away and do, because yeah. yeah. your continuous turn will take you five minutes to make, you know. Yeah, I pretty much wave to the guys in the towers. I go by them. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that that's, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, think about it, you know, in terms of the glider. Like, if my engine quit, uh, I don't want to be sweating making it back to the runway. I can always drop off some excess altitude and uh keep it in a little higher and a little tighter and manage your airspeed so you don't screw that up, you know, coming down way too fast. Yeah, and that's good. And, that's that's a yeah. way to go. And then think about it too, like I said, it's always it's it's like an emergency practice approach every time. Um but remember with the high sink rate you need just a little bit of extra airspeed. And I'm not talking much. Again, I'm talking, you know, the sixty to sixty five to me is excess airspeed. Uh so you need that in order to transition. Uh, same kind of thing though if you're doing mountain flyings and you know you, you actually have to land someplace and you know you're probably going to want to land uphill right some people forget about that when you start to land uphill not only do you flare but then you have to flare even higher and actually go to a positive pitch attitude uh, to be able to land on the uphill slope so that would even requires a little bit more extra speed right than you might normally think that you need for for an emergency landing because you've got to transition all that that uh, uh, negative velocity into an uphill landing, and that, that takes quite a bit of energy without stalling. Well, for me, um, if I'm not really trying to do a whole lot, 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm flying the pattern at 110 or so. I slow to, uh, under 100 so that I can put my flaps down. So as I, as I am a beam, my touchdown point, I'm below 100. I do my power reduction down to about 1600 RPM. That's a pretty, pretty low RPM and, uh, and let it start to decelerate. I throw on my first notch of flaps and then I, I start into my base and final. And depending on whether I'm doing a continuous turn or whether I'm flying a more rectangular pattern, um, I might drop my power down a little bit further. But when I turn on to base, I want to see about 80 on base. Um, and then I'll drop my second notch of flaps and I'm slowing to 70. And I want to be below 70 on final, slowing to 65 across the numbers. And then as I start to round out, I'm looking for 60, 55, you know. But if I'm, if I'm more than 65 coming across the numbers, I'm way too fast. Um, you really want to be at that 65 or, or possibly a little lower when you're crossing the threshold. Yeah, depending on if you're doing a straight-in approach or, the, or right. the turning circle approach that we're talking about. Yeah, but if you're at 70 or 75, that's way too fast. You're just you're going to have problems. you got to slow it down before you get there. Yeah, I agree, unless you got, like I do, 9,000 feet of runway. Yeah, but even then, if you if you are fast and you try to get into the flare uh, with a lot of excess speed, you have to discipline yourself to hold it and let it bleed off. There's a tendency to touch down too fast. And that's what happened to me at Oshkosh in my famous Tigger Oshkosh landing. I was fast. I had people breathing down my throat. It was a high workload environment. And I knew when I touched down, I am too fast, but yeah. I'm going to plant this turkey and I'm, I'm landing. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. boing, 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 boing yeah. down the runway. And so I, I was rewarded with a crappy landing. I know, but you're, you're, not, you're, you're famous now. Well, I can do without a little of that fame. <laughs> All right. What else for operation? Uh, what other what other things run through your head when you're when you're operating? What about EGTs? Oh. What do you like to lean to? I know that's well, a, a loaded question, but sure. You know, again, because I run a little bit lean of peak, my my EGTs probably run a little higher than most people. I'm in the, I'm in the low to mid thirteen hundreds. Uh, but again, I haven't found any uh, adverse effect on any of my components. And you know, an EGT is just kind of a, it's, it's just a guide anyway. We don't ever really know what the true number is going to be. Yeah. So that's typically what I'll run is, is low to mid 1300. Yeah, for me, uh, I like CHTs to... usually run really well. Uh, mine usually, you know, 275 to maybe 300. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while I'll get to 325 or so, but my CHTs are really cooled down quite a bit these days. And mm-hmm. a lot of that is because I really do keep it on the lean side. Right. Um, my peak EGT is, is even hotter than that. Um, I don't peak until I get to about 1500 or 1550. And that makes me a little nervous. Yeah. I don't know what my real peak is. I know it will go well above 1400. Yeah. Um, By that time I'm I'm starting to work that, that throttle mixture pretty hard to get it cooled back down. When I'm in cruise, I like to, I like to lean to about the mid to high thirteens. And that's still a couple hundred degrees richer than those peak temps. Um, and I just, like I said, I, I guess I just get a little weirded out. I just can't bring myself to go any leaner. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm, I need to support. Well, but her. again, if you go leaner, you, you may peak up, but then you'll go back down again as you cross over from the power side to the economy side. Yeah. So you can get back your same numbers. Uh, you'll just run a little bit, you know, a little bit less power, a little bit you know, lower RPMs and, and save some fuel, but you can get back to the same numbers. Yeah. Well, you know, and there, there's one other thing that's on my mind. I have the button lock style 
mixture knob, the one that mm-hmm. I think is the recommended button lock that Sonics talks about. Yeah, um, I had one to start with, but I yeah. wholly recommend changing out to the veneer. I did uh, on my last engine rebuild, and it was something I knew I needed to do. And it's one of those things with the Air V, it will make your life a lot easier. You can sneak up on it so much easier. On mine, I have these gross, clumsy, uh, you know, adjustments. I need to change it out. I've been meaning to. I haven't done it yet. It's on my list. Yeah, it's one of the three big upgrades to the Sonics. You go for the bigger tail wheel, you go for hydraulic brakes, and put a veneer mixture control in. Yeah. So when I, when I get that in, I'm probably going to be able to sneak up on it a little easier than right now. Yeah. Oh, I agree. It was hard with the push button. I, I would never recommend it. Yeah. But, but I think that probably pretty much covers it all. Yeah. You know, let some people develop their own handbooks. You know, my recommendation, keep it very short, very sweet. Put an extra sticker someplace if you need to that you'll see right in front of your eyes. Um, but, you know, use the POH mostly to develop your own mental habits and enforce things into your mind. Perhaps read and read it every once in a while to make sure you don't forget something. But it's just those first couple of line items that are going to make the difference in the true emergencies. Absolutely. You know, I'm just going to, before we wrap it up, I'm just going to go a couple of tips on actually printing your your POH. This is what I do for mine. Um, Mine is done in Word, Microsoft Word. I format my page size to a 5 by 7 page size. And that's important because you can print, two five by seven pages on a regular eight and a half by 11 sheet. And so it makes it real easy. Either they can cut it for you or you can cut it yourself, but you set it up right from the beginning with a five by seven page size. And that way you don't have to try to shrink it with any kind of scaling or anything like that. It's just, it just prints out right. Um, then when you have your, your document all done, you've proofed it. Maybe you do a, a, a copy that you print out at least a few pages to check and make sure that you like the way it, it's coming out on the page. Um, then you're going to want to take it to someplace like Office Depot or Staples or something. If they can convert it to a PDF, an Adobe PDF, um, that's great. They can do it for you. Um, or you might need to convert it to a PDF. But one way or the other, they're going to print it as a PDF. So my advice is if, if you don't have a converter that will, that will turn it from a Word doc to a PDF doc, just call up Office Depot. Call up Staples and say, hey, I got this document. It's formatted for 5 by 7 What do you want me to do? They'll tell you. They'll walk you through it all. Bring it in on a thumb drive or a CD, hand it to them, and then have them pull it right up on the screen and tell them what you want. That's my first page. I want that one in color. I want it to flow, you know, front to back as you're flipping a book and blah, blah, blah. Choose all your options right there in the store with them. Like what type of binding do you want? Do you want a, a spiral bound? Do you want a, one of those little, um, those like little clamshell comb bindings that they expand the little the little comb fingers do you want wire binding or like like a three ring binding whatever they got all kinds of options um go over those options with them and then be very specific on how you want this thing to look and if they have to print out like a preview and assemble it kind of you know before you you do the job do that all up front because once they print it they're just going to shrug their shoulders and say, oh, geez, I wish we'd have known that's not what you wanted. And they're not going to want to redo the job. But if you if you do it all up front, they'll get you exactly what you want. Um, make sure you go over options like do you want a heavyweight paper? You know, your standard paper is a 20-pound paper. But do you want a 24 or a 28? You don't want to go to cardstock, you know, 30s and 40s and stuff like that. But just a, a slightly heavier paper feels a little bit better in the book and makes flipping pages a little bit better. I would recommend a 24 or 28. 
Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do any kind of crazy, you know, high, you know, super white or anything like that. Don't do like a linen. That's all stuff you don't need to worry about. That Just a higher quality, slightly heavier paper is fine. And then options like your clear protector on the front or a printed protector. Um, I like using the clear ones because then you can print out your checklist and, and your cover page and all that. And it just has a nice clear kind of acetate, um, page, like a clear page to protect it. Go through all that. Um, talk about those options. Make sure you, you're very specific and preview it all. And then when you're done, they'll print the thing up and it'll, it'll take them a couple of hours or maybe they'll tell you to come back the next day. But the cost for all that is only going to be like 20 bucks. Um, and that's for a handful of color prints and a whole bunch of black and white prints and your binding and all the, all the various options you're going to specify. And when you're done, you're going to have a really nice professional looking POH with maybe a color cover and a clear protector and a, and a nice checklist on the back or a hardbound sort of back page to kind of keep it stiff. Um, it's going to be money well spent. Um, and 20 bucks is nothing. While you're at it, another tip is if you have those big fat maintenance manuals from Jabiru or from your avionics manufacturer and they gave it to you on CD and you don't want to be burning up your own uh, print, have them print those out while you're at it. I had, I had my Dynon manuals printed and they're like three or 400 pages a piece and they were like 10 or 15 bucks each because they're already doing the job. They might as well just set them up and do those for you as well. So, I think I paid for, for all three of my Dynons. Um, I did my Jabiru manual. I did my AeroCarb manual. I had it comb bound when I was there. I think, I think my total bill was like 50 or 60 bucks. It was definitely easy, good money well spent. Now I've got nice bound books in the hangar and I can go back and refer to them. Um, but again, well, if you have but, any questions, talk to them first. Go ahead. Yeah, but just remember too, you don't necessarily have to carry all that stuff in your airplane. Right. You know, all the manuals and so forth. Yeah, again, I, I'm kind of, I've turned into an iPad, I guess, geek or guru. I don't, I'm not sure I'm a guru, but I'm, I'm certainly geeky about an iPad. Uh, is I, I was able to download almost every manual that you, that you have avionics for in a PDF and put it in the iBox, uh, iBooks format. And so now I can basically carry all of my manuals right there in my iPad that I'm going to have with me anyway, and it takes up absolutely no extra space or weight. And so you can put all that kind of informational stuff into an app as well. Yeah, and, and that is a, is a great idea also. Uh, there's times that that I wish I had that. You know, I probably ought to put them on my iPhone just so I have access to at least my basic manuals. But great point. Oh, yeah, even something one time I was out and I, I needed to try to resync my headset again with, with my uh, with something Bluetooth. I couldn't remember, you know, the access codes or whatever it took for that headset to, to link up with my cell phone and that kind of stuff that gets to be aggravating. Um, but you can just open up the iPad and hit iBooks and pull up the, the the manual for that particular product, and you've got it right there. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I guess my final thought, um, POH, it, you're right when you say that it's about the mental discipline to help you kind of think through some of this stuff. Um, the process of thinking through what do you want in your POH is going to sharpen up some of those areas. It's going to capture that knowledge while it's fresh in your mind. And it's going to be a, a reference that you're going to come back to or possibly someone else is going to come back to. And it might not be someone else flying your airplane. It might be a copy of your manual to that new builder, and it's going to help him out. Even though it's not, you know, it's written for your airplane, it gets him going on the right road. So there, there's there's a lot of advantages to just being disciplined and methodical and doing it. On the same token, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. 
Go take a look at the standardized format. I'll put a link to a bunch of sample POHs that I found, you know, builders post their POH, and I would grab them, and if I liked them, I'd throw them into my library. There's, I don't know, a couple of dozen in this library. Steal shamelessly from other builders. Follow the examples they set. Build on the things you like that work. And then just start piecing your little bits in. And before you know it, you're going to have a pretty decent little document that's going to be, it's going to be good and appropriate for your airplane. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen one that was copyrighted. Nope. Nope. And that's the thing. You know, we're doing this for fun. And part of the fun is helping each other out. So use it. The people put it out there. Use it. All right, Jeff. Well, it was good talking to you again. I'm sure we'll do this again soon. Absolutely. And, uh, Hopefully, we'll get some decent weather here coming up, and we can start running up the hobs again. Because, like I was saying earlier, I start to get a little itchy if I don't get some airtime in. So today really helped, but I need some more. Always need more, hours at a time. (laughs) All right, well, our next show, uh, episode 12, uh, we are working to get Joe Norris on, and uh, we're going to do the Aero V Tips and Tricks episode. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Joe's got a lot of stuff, everything from those little gotchas when you're building up your Aero V to how you set it up and make sure it's set up correctly and how you operate it and maintain it efficiently. So that's going to be a great show, and I'm uh, really looking forward to talking to Joe. You can find us on the web at www.sonicsflight.com. Uh, you can find the show notes for this episode, all those links I talked about, the gamma documents, the ASTM, all that stuff, the sample library of POHs that I've collected, my POH, I'll put a link on there, all that stuff. Um, and then there, there's a couple of discussion threads that came up when I, when I was just kind of searching for some of these things that give you some basic outlines to follow. I'll include some links in, in there as well. So if you want to find those show notes, Again, it is sonicsflight.com slash 11 slash 11. And uh, you can subscribe to the show in uh, iTunes and Google Play, uh, or just use your favorite podcast app. So, again, uh, Gary, it was good talking to you, and um, we'll have to tell John that he missed out on a killer show. So I'm going to give him a ration of crap when I, when I talk to him. That's always a good thing. <laughs> and then if anybody out there has ideas on uh, on future shows that think would be good uh, or you want to be a guest or you have a topic in mind, send us an email. Uh, you can catch us at feedback at sonicsflight.com, and you can find that link on the website as well. And yeah, with that, we'll be I glad think, to poke fun at you too. Absolutely, because we need fresh you Meat. know, victims. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, Gary, um, I think, uh, I think we are done. I am, uh, I'm going to go, uh, get the plane ready to go and, and wait for the weather to improve. All right. Sounds like a plan, bud. All right. Yeah. Be safe out there. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Flight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command. Well, let's give it a try, see how it goes. If we don't like it, we can always race it and say what podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's another one of the lost episodes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 damn it. If, you, if you're buying the beer at Oshkosh, you might get to hear some of these lost episodes. <laughs> That's right.